One great reminder of the perseverance of the saints is, and that it's guaranteed, is because you can be seated. Uh, there's never a time when our Savior is not praying for us. He prays for us without ceasing. Just that great reminder from the text of Scripture that David gave us. Walter Murray McShane once said, If I knew that Christ was praying for me in the other room, I wouldn't fear a thousand enemies. Well, guess what? He prays for you without ceasing. And if anyone has ever had the ear of the Father, it is the Son. Aren't you thankful for the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf? What a blessing. Well, we've got kiddos in here. And I don't know if, if uh, Cindy's trying to go ahead and tell us that we're preaching on a difficult subject today with wives, responsibility, and husbands, but we got the girls on one side and boys on the other, right? <laughs> Sermon analogy already for us, right? 
Today we have the privilege of having another baptism. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Story Rush is our candidate, and she's going to be baptized by her grandfather, Mr. Dakota Rush. Uh, Mr. Dakota has pastored for 49 years, almost as long as I've been alive. Amen. <laughs> and um, he's pastored, it's Ryan's father, and he's pastored in Missouri, Texas, Indiana, uh, just to name a few. And so we have the great privilege of having him baptize Story today. All right. Every grandparent thinks their grandchild is the greatest, and I'm no exception. Story lives up to her name. She loves to tell stories. This morning, she's going to tell you a story, a story of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because she's going to be baptized. She's wanted to do this for some time, and so we've been talking about it, and we look forward to it. And Story, I want to ask you, if you repeat after me, I believe believe that Jesus is the Christ, the the Son of the living God, God, and I'm accepting him him as my Lord and Savior. Savior. Amen. Upon that confession of faith. I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, let me remind you that uh, we have the opportunity to... uh, Fill out a connection card. If you're with us maybe for the first or second time, we would love to know you're worshiping with us today. There's also a uh, prayer card. If you have any prayer concerns, please make those known. And pastor and staff will be faithful to pray for those, all right? Uh, When we came in today, you saw the highlight uh, video of uh, Vacation Bible School. Let me just say on on behalf, well, first of all, let me say two phenomenal ladies uh, who made last week sail without a hitch, uh, Cindy and Jennifer. And let's just give them a, a big round of applause for putting together a great, great Vacation Bible School. And if you were a helper or a teacher or had anything to do uh, in Vacation Bible School, please stand. Please stand. We want to say thank you to you. Amen. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, so just a quick report there. Uh, the high attendance for this week was 310, and uh, there were 225 items that were collected for Operation Christmas Child, and the kids gave $929.62 to help with Day of Giving this year. So, thank you for. Everything that happened at Vacation Bible School, we just praise the Lord for it. Well, let's continue to sing today as uh, this, this hymn reminds us of our relationship to Christ, trust, and obey. 
fellowship, then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way, what he says we will do, where he sends we Jeremiah 32, 17 together. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing too hard for you. Another version. Uh, we're going to sing Psalm 150 that talks about God's awesome creation. And as you sing this, I want you to ask yourself this question. If we believe that the God of the universe created heaven and earth. You look out over the Ozark Mountains, you look out over a beautiful lake, you see a beautiful sunset, and you see God did all of that. And yet I've got something going on in my family, and I don't think he can take care of it. We think that way, don't we? So let's, let's think about God's beautiful creation, all that he's done, and he can do anything that we need him to do in our marriage and our families. Amen. Let's sing it together.
him to bless our time of offering. Lord God, you have created the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. But yet, Lord, there are families that crumble, marriages that dissolve. Lord, help us to look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us Lord, to turn our marriages, turn our families over to you. Lord, nothing is too difficult for you. Just, we just need to keep that phrase on the tip of our tongue. Whenever we face something with our spouse, whenever we face something with our child, nothing is too difficult for you. We just need to say it over and over again and believe it. Nothing is too difficult for you. Lord, help us to just take heed to what the pastor will be speaking on here in a moment about how... A man and a woman are to uh, live together, leave and cleave. And, and Lord, we just pray your blessing upon each and every family today. Lord, we pray for our, our offering and may it be used to the glory of your name, for the building of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We prepare for God's word today. Let this be your prayer. Lord, I come and I confess, bowing here I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the Right up to him. Lord, I need you. 
time of prayer before the message. 42 years ago, last month, Cami and I were married. About uh, a year before that, we announced our engagement to the family. My grandpa, Grandpa Sparky, said, you know it's going to take all three of you. And we understood what he was saying. God has to be in the midst of it, or it'll all crumble. So let's just, uh, only you know what you need to pray for for your marriage and your family right now. Just go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear God's word today. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. You are our only hope, our only defense. 
Oh, Lord, how we need you. Amen. We praise the Lord for the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that help us fix our focus upon the scripture and what the Lord has to say to us. We have certainly spoken to our Lord by way of prayer and by way of vocalizing our love for Christ, our obedience to him by song. And now God wants to speak to us. And he does so through his word. Listen to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Oh, to be me today. Oh, some of you guys are, want to take my place today. Well, here's one thing we know. When the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrates any society or culture, the status of women has been consistently elevated. That's what the gospel does when it changes and transforms the hearts of men and women. Christianity upholds women as co-heirs of the grace of life. Just stay where you are, listen to a complimentary text to what we're preaching today, and you should get familiar with it. If he, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, but listen to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And he adds this to you, knuckle-headed men and myself, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Wow, we may unpack that one soon enough. So, we believe the Bible teaches clearly that women are equal in the image of God, equal in redemption, and gloriously and uniquely different. Might I add that? Different in their roles in the home and in the church. God help the church celebrate the differences. Help us as a church celebrate that. The calling of womanhood in the Bible is a high and holy calling. But our Western civilization as a whole despises and rejects that particular calling. I think the irony in all of this is that they have pretended in the quest to liberate women from the shackles of Christian tradition... But this liberation has done more to exploit women, demean women, and rob women of the fulfillment that God actually has for them. The culture of egalitarian feminism or feminism, more than any systematic oppression, has been an oppressive force. It has waged war upon the womb, legalizing abortion. It has cast down hundreds of thousands of women who have suppressed their desires to be wives and mothers 
only realizing far too late that the very thing they thought they were being liberated from was the very thing that Almighty God had seen for them to find satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. Is this passage important in light of our present condition? Never has our country been more confused, right, about gender, marriage, and family. And we know that the world at large is hostile toward the historic Christian view of marriage. And I think the past few years have, have only accentuated that particular truth that the wisdom of God is what matters, right? And that the wisdom of man is foolishness before God. We still have not as a country learned our lessons, have we? So the enemy seeks to confuse, the devil seeks to confuse and systematically tear down the foundations of what God has planned for marriage. So here's how John Stott summarizes what a biblical idea of marriage is. Are you ready? Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in a sexual union, issuing in a permanent supportive partnership, and normally crowned with the gift of children. How do you like that definition? Well, it's the biblical definition. This is the biblical idea of marriage. So this was considered as normal across the world for most of our history. Yet in recent times, this ideal is viewed as only one among several. We're now confronted with the world seeking to define what marriage means and what the family means. We cannot let that happen and not say something, right? Because God is the one who ordained marriage and the family. I find it interesting that of course, this portion of scripture we know is mocked. It is scoffed upon, what I just read to you. Back in early 2000, the SBC released a statement on gender roles for the church and the home. And the media stroked out. I don't know if you remember this. Back in 2000, Larry King invited Dr. Albert Moeller onto his talk program show and asked him about this very peculiar thing that the SBC was doing when they were putting forth gender roles for home and church. Larry King, with an incredulous tone in his voice, said, Where did you get this? <laughs> well, it's not just the world that mocks the inspired word of God and role in gender distinctions. Folks, it's even in the church. There are large, large segments of people who claim to be evangelical Christians and they look at the Bible and they see what it says for the roles of women and men and they seek to do everything they can to eliminate it, compromise it, or attempt to make it say something less than it actually says. So as we approach this text, don't give in to the urge to jettison the parts of authority and submission. They're given by God for a particular purpose. There's way too much at stake, ladies and gentlemen, for us to either reject or disobey what this very unpopular text actually has to say to us. What we do when we reject, what will we do when we reject and nullify this text? Well, for you and your own marriage, you're actually rejecting the spirit-filled life. 
please understand the, the imperative command is in 518. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there are five participles of result. And submission is one of the participles of result. So if we say we want all the things that have to do with commitment and marriage and every, all the good grandiose things, but we're going to throw out submission, you're throwing out and jettisoning one of the participles of the result that you're actually filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So we do great damage to what the Bible calls us to be in spirit-filled living when we nullify what the Word of God has to say. So we learned last week that marriage has an ultimate big picture. And unfortunately, it's not you. It's the glory of God. It is Christ and his love for his church. In other words, your marriage is an analogy of an already existing reality. God doesn't exist to magnify your marriage. Your marriage exists to magnify God. That's why he made it. So we talked about embracing some things as we go through this text as an overview. Remember that? We embrace this. As what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We embrace our responsibilities with hope and joy. We don't uh, uh, grunt through it. We actually embrace it with hope and joy because it's what God designed. How would we not want to do what God designed? And then finally, remember, we actually embrace this with a picture and understanding and vision of the very glory of God. So if we reject the instruction given to us here then we're actually destroying the very picture that God intends for our marriages to display. We, we can't do that. We can't reject and nullify what the Spirit does in the marriage relationship as our responsibility. And we certainly can't nullify the picture that it stands for, right? The big picture of Christ and His love for His church. So these two elements of love and submission are non-negotiables when it comes to the relationship of Christ and His church. And therefore, there are non-negotiables when it comes to a husband and wife. Hope you see that. Theologically, we're not free to retain supposedly an exalted view of Christian marriage with all the loving service and commitment and trust and growth on the one hand. And then we're not free to dump the hierarchical structures of authority and patterns of submission and subordination on the other hand. We can't do that. We can't just say they're outdated. Uh, they're not part of our culture. Well, we cannot compromise, we cannot nullify, we cannot diminish, we cannot reshape or fit our culture or fit, reshape it to fit our culture without doing irreparable damage to the picture of Christ or irreparable damage to the spirit-filled life. I know I'm hammering this because I want you to grasp this. Okay, we learned last week that as we discuss our roles, we need to keep focus on the glory of God and please do that as we go through. So... It is actually when the biblical responsibilities of Ephesians 5, 22-33 are fulfilled that we're doing so in the power of the Spirit. We can't simply ditch these things, right? Now, it's possible to do these things and not have a God-honoring marriage. Why? Because you can do some of these things with a pharisaical attitude, right? That's not what we're... we understand that. But we ought to be motivated to do this because of it pointing us to Christ, that is our motivation, okay? So, ladies, there's only 40 words for you. You should rejoice in that. Men, there are 100 
and 15 words for you, and that's bad, bad news. The only thing I can figure out is we're slow to learn. I get it. I get it, right? First uh, Peter, however, has six verses for you ladies, chapter 3, and one verse for the men. Uh, but that one for the men is tough, right? Because our prayers are hindered if we do not treat you as we should. So, the cohesiveness of moving from verse 21 to 22 is incredibly tight grammatically. I think I hit on this before. Submitting, which is the fifth result, participial result of being filled with the Spirit. Submitting to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. And then when you get to verse 22, there's no conjunction. Right? There's no conjunction given like this. Therefore, or but, or and. It is so tight that it's just flowing. As a matter of fact, the NLT says, further... Right? Because he's enumerating these things. And also the verb submit in most manuscripts is not found in verse 22. Why is that important? Because verse 22 is carrying the full weight of the introduction of the verb to submit from verse 21. Okay? So it would read, wives, as to your own husbands, as to the Lord. So what is he doing? He's building on the term Submitting unto. Uh, so, wives, here it is. Submit to your husbands. 22 through 24. And then verse 33b. I did not read that, but look. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the overarching point, again, the spirit-filled wife. And our point, our division is wives, submit to your husbands. And I have six subpoints. Show them on the board, would you? There they are. The good news for you ladies is I'm only going to hit two today. All right? Because when you get to number three, it begins to give you your regulatory motivations for doing what you do. Okay? And I want to put those four together. Today, we're just going to deal with submit to their own husbands and submit as to the Lord. Are you all ready? You're stoked? Oh, to be me today, right? Okay. All right. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. Again, this word, hupotasso, pertains to marriage. And it's not a very popular word. To consider even the range, semantic range of meaning would be subject, subordinate, submit. And yes, you're quaking, obey. That is the semantic range of the meaning. And when you put that into a marriage, you get fireworks. Especially in our world. Can you imagine, or you can imagine that there has been countless efforts to seek to tweak that word, weaken that word, soften that word, and then absolutely ignore it. I've actually witnessed this in premarital counseling many times when you began to lay out domestic life. Or as Luther would call the hustafel, the house rolls. When I begin to lay these things out in a marriage counseling setting. And you say something about the wife submitting unto her husband. Sometimes the ladies will go. And then the only thing you get is a little bit of. Just a little slight nod of the head. It's not natural for us to submit folks. 
That's why verse 21 is there. It's the supernatural work of God provided by the Holy Spirit in us. When you're redeemed, that's the difference, right? When you know the Lord. So, if it's unnatural, we think, surely that's not what it means, right? Surely it's not what it means. There ought to be another meaning. But it literally means to submit to, to be subject to, and to obey. Have you noticed That in many marriage ceremonies that we attend nowadays, you don't hear often the words submit or obey. They're absent from the ceremony. Either the preachers are lily-livered or the couple says, we don't want those words in there. And if you tell me that, I'm going to say them anyway. (laughs) If I'm doing your wedding, I'm just sorry. You know, I have to. If you read the scripture, which I usually hit Ephesians, and I remind the people of God's design, then it's important to lay those roles out there. Okay? Now, here's something important. When the participial phrase in verse 21 is used, submitting to one another, grammar also has voices. Okay? This one is the middle voice. So... What's acting upon what is, is what that would mean. And it is the middle voice. What does that mean? It means that when it says wives submit, it is saying submit one's self. In other words, what Paul is calling you ladies to do with your husbands is voluntary. Right? If you skip over this too fast, uh, too fast and you don't look at the grammar, then you don't realize that this is voluntary to your husbands. The appeal is to free and responsible persons, which you heed this voluntarily. It is not by the elimination of or the breaking of the human will that you actually submit. Wives, this is voluntary, and you submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, hear this. It is not your responsibility to make your wife submit to you. There's no command that says, husbands, subjugate your wives. What does it mean to say voluntary submission? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, and that will help you understand what it does mean. It does not mean inferiority. Get that particular word out of your mind. It's wrong-headed. It is totally unbiblical to hear the word submission and automatically assume superiority or inferiority. The one who submits, we think, well, if you're in a... literal word, to line yourself up under the authority of another. Hupotasso, under another. We automatically think if one is under another, then that is inferiority. That's the way we think. This is the way the society thinks. Submission does not imply or mean superiority. Voluntary submission also doesn't mean, ladies, that it's optional. (laughs) All right? In other words, you say, well, if it's voluntary, I'm a fat boy in dodgeball. I'm out. Right? No, that's not what it means. So, David, you've been waiting forever for me to do that, haven't you? Hey, let me tell you about David today. So we're in my office, and we're talking about baptismal service. And David gets in his mind a granddad baptizing and baptizing. And he says, yeah, when, when the grandizing is going on, 
And I said, what did you just say? I said, dude, you just created a new word. Grandizing, right? Okay, that was pretty funny. You had to be there, okay? All right. So voluntary doesn't mean take it or leave it. It's the attitude of the heart. It's in connection with being filled with the Spirit of God. In other, think about this. It is voluntary, but it's still a command. It's not an option. Folks, in a very real sense, all of God's commandments as a believer are ones that you must voluntarily submit yourself to. Okay, the word submission is used 38 times in the New Testament. And let me give you a few of these. You ready? If, if you can't get what I'm, if you don't get the sentence, at least write down the verse. Okay? You ready? The word submission is used 38 times. It's used of Christ the Lord when he submits himself to his parents in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. It is used of the demons who were actually subjected to the disciples in Jesus' name in Luke 10, 17, and 20. 10, 20, uh, 17, 20. It is used of the natural mind's inability in itself to submit itself to the law of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. In Romans 10, 3, it is used of the Jews' refusal to submit themselves to the very righteousness of God. We have in Romans 13, Titus 3, and 1 Peter 2, the Christian responsibilities, and smile when I say this, to submit to the governing authorities. Aren't you stoked about that one? Right? We have the Christian responsibility to submit to church leaders in 1 Corinthians 16, 16. And then we have all Christians' responsibility to submit to their Heavenly Father in Hebrews 12, 9 and in James 4, 7. There's a responsibility of Christian servants to submit to their masters in Titus 2, 9, 1 Peter 2, 18. And then we have Christian wives that are to submit to their husbands in Colossians 3.16, Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3.1,5, 1 and 5. And of course we have Ephesians 5.22. And we have Christian young men who are to submit themselves to their elders. Y'all hear that, guys? Submit to your elders, that's someone older than you, like me. And some of our other guys that are older, right? So you're looking at 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Then we have most interestingly of all how this word is used in connection with the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 1, Philippians 2, Hebrews 3, and 1 Peter 3. And when it's used in reference to Christ, it's used... In two very distinct ways. Listen to this. Y'all ladies, listen. First, all things being subjected under Christ's feet as he is the head over all things. And second, Jesus being subjected or submitting himself to the Father's will. Okay? Christ has lordship over the entire universe. All things are submitted under his feet. Yet as the second person of the Trinity, he has always been and always will be in submission to his Father. I give you this to show you that submission is woven throughout scriptures in what we might call a theology of submission. In other words, for you to reject any authority and submission, then you're pretty much rejecting what Christ Jesus actually did. 
because he has full authority, yet he submitted himself to his Father's will. Okay? So there is divine order that has been established. Can we say amen? God has to establish a divine order. Secondly, divinely constituted authority and divinely required submission to that authority make up God's order. This is important. Hear this again. There is a divine order that has been established. And inside of that established order is constituted authority and required submission inside of that order. God did this. God has so established in his creation and in his created world that there is authority and there is submission as an imprint upon his creation. So that when God's pattern of authority and submission is followed, you've got order and you've got peace. When it's not followed, listen to this, whether it's the home, the marriage, the church, or our country, you have chaos and anarchy. Wake up to the U.S. tomorrow morning. That's what happens when there's no order, there's no authority. Think about one of the last verses in Judges. It, it may actually be the last one. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king in the land. In the land. Absence of authority aggravated assault and assassination and awful apostasy. That's what you saw in the land because of God's divine order rejected. So, in, all, in other words, this submission is not inferiority. And the best demonstration of this is the divine trinity of God. Three persons. Y'all getting this? Coexisting. Co-eternal. Co-equal. Father, Son, and Spirit. The biblical understanding of the trinity is that the Father is fully God. As the Mormons believe, he wasn't a man who evolved into fatherhood. He is the Father. For all eternity. He is fully God. In the same way that the Son of God is fully God. Y'all do know that Jesus is not some Johnny come lately. He, he, he didn't have a beginning. He was the Son of God for all eternity. Took on the name Jesus when he condescended from heaven. He's the Son of God forever and all times. He has no beginning. He has no end. And then also the Holy Spirit of God is fully God. Thus, in their personhood, three persons in one with the Trinity, they're all three equal, yet we know that within the Trinity there is also a hierarchy. The Son always submits to the Father. Read John. It's called Johannine Theology. All the way through it, I've come to do my Father's will. I've come to do my Father's will. I'm going to accomplish my Father's work. And he's doing everything in subjection to his father. And yet, in the Bible, we also see the Holy Spirit always submitting to who? The Father and the Son. So we have equality of personhood, and then we have distinctiveness in roles based upon an authority structure, even in the divine holy trinity of God. You have this. So that authority structure doesn't undermine, it does not diminish in any way the equality of personhood in the trinity. The evangelical feminists, whatever they are, they maintain that when you say equal but different, that's just old Jim Crow laws to them. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what it teaches about the divine trinity of God. Their conclusion is that when we say wives must submit to their husbands, 
There's no way that you can escape that we're saying that women are inferior to men. And what I say about that is that's wrong-headed. And that is not what the Word of God teaches. And I say it's nonsense as well. Just look at the Trinity. The authority structure is even in the eternal Godhead. Three persons equally God in one. Notice the text. Wives are not expected to submit to anyone else's husband. It's to your own husband, right? After wives submit to your own husbands is what it says. We find another troubling expression. You ready for this one? So first, wives are to submit to their own husbands. And then secondly, wives are to submit as to the Lord. Now, is that troubling? I mean, how do we flesh this out? Well, there is a sister epistle to Ephesians. And what is it? Colossians. Somebody was listening, right, to our exposition. Colossians 3.18 helps us here. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. As is fitting to the Lord. It is not the wife looking at her husband and thinking, I obey my husband because he is like God to me. I want to tell you what, guys, that's a hard sell. Because they know better than that, Right? That's not what this is saying. Paul is stating within that voluntary nature of submission that ultimately your submission to your husband is to the Lord. Right? It's to the Lord. The phrase in the Lord provides the motivation for women to submit to their own husbands. When a woman voluntary, voluntarily submits to her husband, she is simultaneously submitting unto the Lord. Are there clarifications? Yes, we'll get to that next week when it says in everything. Well, what does that mean? Okay, we'll unpack that. But understand, there's a simultaneous, when you're honoring your husband by submitting, you're also honoring the Lord. It is as to the Lord. Barth states this. Y'all listening? Subordination to Christ and subordination to the husband are then as related and inseparable as the love of God and the love of man. Please, folks, you have to see what the text is saying to you in your motivation. You can't just hear a word and think, oh, no, do we believe the Bible? Hello? Do we believe the Bible? Do we believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and instruction in righteousness? That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished? Yes. So we must give the same weight to what this text says to us. Wives, your voluntary submission to your husbands is obedience to the Lord. It's not based on whether your husband is a great guy. I've met some of you. He may be and he may not be, right? It is a call to submission to the Lord himself. In other words, think about it. Authority, right? Love, submission. There's there's certain order and there's authority structures and it's not evil. Because our God is the one who actually put them in place. So, hear this. There is dignity to the submission that our Lord calls you to do. Ladies, think about this. There's dignity to it. Let's consider what this dignity means. Stop and think about what the eternal Son of God did. Just just focus upon the Incarnation. That he is absolutely equal with the Father. But did not consider that equality something to be grasped. 
But he made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death. But God the Father has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want you to see the dignity here of the Lord himself entering into this world. He had his own will, but he submitted his will to the Father, never ever jettisoning one bit of what God the Father was asking him to do, and he obeyed, to bear your sins and mine. He came to bear the sins of many. And when I hear this, my heart extols the Christ of glory. Does yours? However, when we see the word submit among marital domestic life, then we're like, whoa. I'm telling you, folks, there's dignity in submission. And the model is Christ. We celebrate submission, that he would become, he was rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. And you say, well, he said he didn't have have a place to lay his head. That's right. When was he rich? In all of his glory in heaven before he came to this earth. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. That through his poverty you might become rich. So we, we revel in the Lord yielding himself to the will of the Father so that he comes perfectly in accord with the Father's will, even to the point of death on the cross, we celebrate that submission. And do you see what happened in that submission? Without that submission, there's no point of death on the cross. Without that submission, he doesn't die on the cross. Are you all listening? And together with the dignity of that submission, God has highly exalted him. And Do you see the dignity? This means yes, this means no. Are y'all listening? Talk to me. Yes, you should see this. There is a peculiar dignity in the call to wives to submit to their husbands. And I'm telling you, folks, it's absolutely beautiful when it's done in harmony the way the Word of God has it. And the happiest people I know in the world, the happiest married people in the history of the world, have been people who did it this way. And you can take it to the bank. I don't care how hard you argue. The ones who lovingly lead. Husbands, I'm coming at you in a couple of weeks, right? But, but wives, think about this. When it's done in the dignity of Christ and his willingness to submit, not out of you being subjugated to do that, but voluntarily because you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and you see over the precipice of everything else in life that the glory of God is on your marriage. Then it's beautiful. It is a It's God's order. And it's beautiful the way God does it. So, hear me. There is a peculiar dignity in the call to wives to submit to their own husbands. And when you submit to your husband, you're doing something that is Christ-like. Are y'all listening? It is Christ-like. Even if that knucklehead is not leading you according to what we're going to see in the text. I wish there was an exception clause for you ladies. That if he's not leading as he should, you just bow out. It's not what the text says. 
Now again, there are lines you have to draw with him asking you to disobey the word. We're going to go through those things when it says in everything. But hear this. Submission has an awesome beauty to it. And we should not view this as some servile inferiority where you just grunt it out, ladies, and get over it. Or get on with it. Why does God have it this way? Because God's calling for you is to enter into a life of submission that reflects the beauty of the Son of God and what He has done in subjection to His Father. Wow. There's also a dignity to your submission, not only because of what Jesus has done in Christ's likeness, but your submission is rendered into the Lord. Right? You render yourself. Paul tells us that whatever you do, work as unto the Lord and not to men. I think we need to consider that ultimately the difficulties and challenges of, with submission has to transcend the husband-wife relationship. There's something bigger, right? And you see it in the text. Paul says, I will tell you, it's this mystery that Christ loved the church and the church submits unto Christ. Now, this is the Lord's call upon your life. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And beginning in verse 23... He's going to give further motivations and reasons for you to answer that call for your responsibility. Next week, we're going to kind of hit the challenge of the thought that, well, you see, I know how we can get out of this Pauline admonition to submit because Paul's culture was different from ours. I mean, you're dealing with Greco-Roman values and Jewish culture, and certainly Paul was going to yield himself to those standards of that particular day Surely he was just going to reflect on that and fall line and sit. Well, watch this. Next week, as Paul begins to give the reasons for the motivation to submit, he does not appeal to cultural mores, or does he appeal to something? He actually, he actually appeals to something that transcends all culture. He will appeal to something that goes far beyond Greco-Roman or American or European or whatever you may call that, He's not going to appeal to cultural convention. He's going to appeal to God-ordained wisdom and power and authority of why God set these up. We're going to study that next week. Okay. All right, Genesis 3. Well, you better be glad I didn't say Genesis 1, that I was going to preach all the way through. Let me show you something that's, that's pretty awesome. Genesis chapter 3. This is the conclusion of the sermon. I want you to think about the mediation, the God mediating out his curse and judgment upon the serpent, the devil, right? The woman and Adam. This is, this is what happens, okay? And what I'm wanting you to think about is there's conflict and confusion here. But when you get to Ephesians chapter 5, it's the way the redeemed relationship ought to look. It did not look that way right here, Okay? I want you to think about that. And I would argue that as you go from Genesis 3.15 and all the way to the end of the Bible, you see how those redeemed relationships actually work out in the marital life. And sometimes it's not good at all. Right? However, Ephesians 5 is the paradigm. Paradise lost in, Ephesians, in Genesis 3. Can we regain any of paradise lost in our marriages on this world today? You better believe it. And the way you do it is Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, with that being said, listen. The Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 we call the proto, 
euangelion, the first gleams of the gospel. Listen to it. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the Christ is going to completely crush the head of the enemy. That's the four gleams of the gospel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. No amens? Right? Epidural, right? Hey, if you can reverse the curse, go for it, right? <laughs> in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Are y'all listening? But he shall rule over, over you in the midst of sin, in the midst of yielding to the flesh, it's going, to be, it's going to appear to be domineering from the man's part and the woman's part seeking to control. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. That's certainly true this week in Missouri, right? For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And I'm telling you folks, nobody's beat that before. Right? So, marriage, the marriage relationship God put together in the Garden of Eden in chapter 2. And in a divine sense, he pronounced Adam and Eve husband and wife. But now marriage has been struck with corresponding pain because of sin. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth. But this phrase, you desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This was part of my dissertation back in 2004 in writing this. And I studied in depth this particular issue of desire, he shall rule. And if you read this in its context, the same word is also used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where God says to Cain, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. There's the word desire. But you must rule over it. So the wife now, as a result of sin, the desire is to control her husband. But she would fail because God ordained that man should lead. Yet note the conflict and confusion here in the roles. Strife would persist in domestic relationship. Folks, in the moments of life's greatest blessings. Are y'all listening? Nothing can compare to God making man out of the dust of the earth. And then out of his side making that woman. She shall be called Isha because she is taken out of Ish. So beautiful. Not a single animal could meet Adam's desire. But when he made that woman, Katie barred the door. She's now bone of my bone. In, in other words, he said, wow! Awesome! Nothing can compare to the preeminent nature of a husband and a wife. Only one thing, your loyalty to Jesus, right? That spouse is numeral uno to you, not those kids. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be glued into his wife. The preeminent of all human relationships is the husband and the wife. So, think about this. Strife would persist in the, in the greatest blessing ever given. Not only marriage, but children. 
And in the midst of that pain, and the woman would serve most clearly the painful consequences of rebellion against God. And verse 17 will show that the center of man's life is also going to have some striving when you're working to try to provide a living. So, are you ready for this? In these punishments are God's graces. You may have just bumped over that and forgot about it. But in the fact that the enemy would bruise the heel of the Son of God by death on the cross, his death and resurrection would crush his head. So in the midst of the judgment, punishment, there was the grace of God. So think of that. Think of that. So marriage alone will give no woman all she wants. And that's why this text points you to Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one that can satisfy your deepest longings. This text, Ephesians 5, is absolutely chock full of what Jesus did for us. That's the, that's the picture. That's what you need to look at. So, Kent Hughes notes, Mothering is fraught with pain from birth onward. To be a mother is to experience a new and ongoing index of pain. Some of you women, I see you shaking your head. William Blake said, Joy and woe are woven fine. And that is so true in the marriage relationship. Folks, this is grace because it will drive you willingly to seek Christ as the only fulfillment in your life. Augustine, St. Augustine praised God in retrospect as he viewed this text and he called it uncomfortable grace. And here's what he has to say. Your goad, God, was thrusting me at my heart, giving you no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. This text drives us to Christ, folks. It drives us to Jesus. Kent Hughes again says, it was midnight in the Garden of Eden. Oh, boy, that's an understatement. When you read Genesis 3, it was midnight. Paradise was lost. Curses and judgments rained down. Yet there was grace. God's curse upon Satan meant that his own son one day would become a curse for us. That's what it means. Satan would strike his heel, but the wound received would mean that the son would strike a death blow to Satan. And all God's people should say, Amen. Grace is rooted in Christ's victory. God's judgments would fall on the very center of women's existence. But in those judgments, there was grace. Listen, ladies. Nothing would satisfy you or can satisfy you today but the Lord God Almighty. We need the gospel. Now listen to this. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. What do you see in that? Sinners and grace. The church, we're sinners. And yet Christ, the perfect one, died for us. If that's not enough, Galatians 2.20 puts the me in there. Right? For I am crucified with Christ. And nevertheless I live. Yet it's not I that lives in the flesh. But it is Christ in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, that's the thing. We got to start at the right place when it comes to marriage. And the starting place is the gospel. Without redemption, there's no beautiful marriage. Without redemption, all is lost. Everything in this passage points to Christ. Make sure you start at the right place. He died for the church, which displayed its sinfulness 
and Christ's saving grace. And let's all be honest, the biggest problem with marriage is sin. Right? It is. Marriage is intended to point us to our Redeemer. So when we walk as the people of God in the power of the indwelling spirit, we can regain something of paradise lost in our marriages. Amen? And by the way, don't hold on too tightly to it because when you get to glory, won't nobody be given in marriage. Are y'all listening? Your marriage is a picture of a gigantic, enormous, I don't know what other words I can use, something else way bigger than we are. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope you understand that. Amen. Are you ladies mad at me? Oh, to be me today. I got up this morning, I was like, poof, get to preach on submission. I'm stoked. But then the more I thought about Christ and you reflecting him, the more you preach something like this with joy. Right? All right. Be a little something. We, you ladies, can be Christ-like. And it is Christ-like when you submit to godly leadership. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. And Lord, in particular, Father, for our ladies. Lord, if they do not know you, may your word and Holy Spirit convict their hearts of the need for Jesus. You are the only one that can satisfy our deepest longings. And Lord, our marriage ends up being a display of what happened inside of us when you saved us. A display of baptism to be raised to walk in newness of life. To, in a sense, regain paradise lost. As much as possible, with two sinners living under the same roof, as much as possible, until we see you face to face and we shall be like you, for we will see you as you are. Lord, help us. Help our marriages, God. Send revival into our marriages and our homes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. stand together. The pastor just mentioned a while ago, we've got to keep our eyes on Christ to accomplish all this. Let's sing just that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. to the hillside and turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embrace there the son of God gave his life for us and our measureless debt was erased Jesus Okay, you young people listen to all that. Pop quiz. It's not going to be multiple guests. 
I'll give you a pop quiz. No, I'm not. But do you understand how important it is for our young people to sit under the word? But there's also a responsibility to you. You heard. You know what's been said. You know what's been preached. You know what's in the Bible. And now we have a responsibility to obey what the scriptures say. And we as a congregation have a responsibility, wives, to teach the younger women how to love their That's in the scripture too, right? Titus 2. Older women teach the young women how to love their... I'm glad that's in there, right? Because I'm thinking the whole time, love Christ as Christ loved the church, but wives submit unto me, but do they have to love me? Yes, my wife does, because the Bible says that. All right, youth camp. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, wave at us if you're going to youth camp, if you're one of those suckers who agreed to go. No, I'm kidding. You adults, raise your hand. Uh, Amy, uh, Jeffrey, Elsie. Oh, bless the youth's heart with Elsie going, right? No, I'm kidding. No, just kidding. Who else? Christy Putt. All right. Let's pray for our leaders and our children. It's going to be really hot in that valley in Siloam Springs, and we want protection for our kids, but also for them to have a good time. So they leave in the morning at 9-ish. All right. Awesome to have Kyle and Katie Brousseau with us. Amen. They're, they're sitting over there. And... Uh, I think it was a dual visit, right? One of the primary reasons is Brother Scott Rookstool, you know he had cancer surgery. Uh, did we get a pathology? Not yet. But all things look good right now. He had surgery. He's mending up, getting better, so we praise God for that. Would y'all come up here just so people can see you? There are, I like to say it this way. They are our IMB missionaries, and uh, they're Southern Baptist missionaries, but they're also our church missionaries. And I just want you to, do we have something going on today? Not really. Good night. What about that missions pastor? I mean, you never know about him, right? But God bless y'all. And hey, just uh, I want you, Kyle, if you would pray for our, as we dismiss. And uh, then after you pray, go back there and line up so people can come talk to you. Sure. Does that work? Yeah, that's great. All right. Stick your Actually, hand. Actually, they said uh, they're going to go to the missions center. So that way you can meet them and also know where the mission center is. All right. That sounds great. As you go, please filter through the comments. We have uh, uh, 26 children who uh, said they had no church affiliation that came to Bible school last week, representing seven, 17 families. Okay, So if we can get to those 17 homes, preferably today uh, or this week for sure, and then once you do that, just write down what you found, uh, the results of that visit, take a picture of it, send it to Don, and, and that way we'll, we'll have a, a record of that, okay? So please make those visits. All 17 homes need to be visited this week. Yeah, let's pray together. Dear Father, we do just thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity uh, to look into it and be guided uh, through it as a church body. So, yeah, we thank you for being a God who speaks to us through your word. But also, Father, we just thank you for being a God who involves us in your mission and your work uh, for uh, our local context here and around the world. And so, God, we just celebrate uh, what you have done in this church body uh, last week in Vacation Bible School. And also, God, we just pray that in the coming days, uh, weeks and months and years, Lord, that you would show us opportunities uh, to represent you well and to be your ambassadors uh, here in Ozark, across uh, the Midwest, and even uh, to the ends of the earth, uh, God. And that's, uh, that's our, 
our, our privilege as your children. So we thank you, uh, and we celebrate what you're doing. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.